Futuramic design means styling with a purpose. Introducing the all-new hoverboard, the scooter of the future. Sharper Image Wheelie Razor is the hottest thing on two wheels. Now, what does it do? This is the world's first self-balancing human transport. Electric scooters speeding down roads and sidewalks. San Francisco streets bustle with activity. Cars, walkers, bicyclists, and now scooters, all sharing the same roadways. Welcome back to the Rider Guide Podcast. I'm Chase Stubblefield, and today we have a very special episode. You, you picked a great one because we um, are interviewing one of the directors of New, one of the largest micromobility companies in the world, uh, one of very few that's publicly listed on a stock exchange. They're huge in electric mopeds globally, and they've also been expanding into other categories, which we're going to jump into. It's a really interesting conversation. We're very honored to have New, so thank you for that. Um, we're talking about everything from different form factors to even some of the harder parts of, say, like scaling um, the business with scooters, which is just operations and after skills is hard for everybody. And so how they're kind of tackling that problem and have been seeking um, to. All right, let's jump in. So Joseph, uh, you speak Mandarin. How are you doing in Mandarin? Well, I haven't been in China for about three years uh, <laughs> due to uh, a certain issue that's been uh, spanning the globe. So my, my Mandarin has definitely uh, taken a decline over the past, uh, since early 2020. But uh, it still still works for me, um, and uh, still have to use it on a, on a fairly regular basis um, with some of my team back in in China. So cool. It's okay. Yeah. yeah. So we're we're super honored to have you on the podcast. Um, we we're looking around. You know, there, there's not a ton of content on new so far, even with being one of the most prominent players in all of micromobility globally, one of the few mm. companies on the stock exchange. I love. You know, you've been at new for a really long time. I'd love to hear just kind of opening this with helping the audience understand, you know, who is new, well, what's the story and things like that. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me. And uh, it's always nice to uh, talk about what we've been up to at new for the past seven, eight years. Um, I joined new in, in, in the spring of 2016. So it's been about seven years um, shortly after the company launched in China. Um, so I was very fortunate to be able to, with two other individuals, start the international division for the company. Basically, to take everything that we were doing in China global. Um, and back then, global for us was how do we enter the European market with our electric mopeds. And when you think about our electric mopeds, think about it as if like Tesla and Vespa had a baby. That's mm -hmm. kind of our, our, our core product area. And I use that analogy all the time, and it just, especially for Americans, it really kind of hits home with them as to like what our product is. Uh, for your European users, I think they'll have a better idea. Um, but uh, you know, moving outside of China was was a, was a big step for us um, as a company because we had to really adapt our products that we had been building specifically for China to a European context, um, and to give people kind of kind of a scope of the size of our business now. Um, I think since the beginning of time to now, so since more or less the summer of 2015 until now, um, you know, we've sold more than three and a half million vehicles. We have billions of miles um, of connected uh, riding being done on our mopeds, our scooters, our e-bikes, both in China, Europe, America, South America, Asia, throughout Asia. Um, so I think we're in uh, more than 50 countries at, at, at this point. And our real core focus as a company is 
is really trying to help solve urban mobility problems. Um, so coming out of China, where urban transportation is essential just because of the large populations that, that live in cities throughout China, um, we obviously saw the same types of problems in cities in Europe and obviously cities throughout the Americas and Asia. And, and so very early on, we had a core set of products that were just mopeds and we had several different models, uh, but we, we realized very quickly after launching those vehicles um, in Europe and elsewhere is that there is a context for every form factor of vehicle in different markets. So mopeds don't solve all problems for end users. Um, so that's why we began to develop our line of kick scooters, our line of e-bikes, um, in order to be able to, to solve other use scenarios um, for our end users. So the best way to think about us also is we're, we're kind of like Honda motorcycles in a way where we're developing full lines uh, of mm -hmm. vehicles all the way from our larger you know, vehicles that go well over 100 kilometers an hour all the way down to our smaller kick scooters for kids that go you know, 15 kilometers an hour. Uh, so, you know, there's everything else um, that sits in between. Um, so it's been quite an adventure to go from a team of three people uh, doing overseas to a team not much bigger than that, but uh, operating in more than 50 countries with partners that help us execute in each of those markets um, for all of our different vehicle form factors. Awesome. And so, the founding of New, was that originally with electric mopeds? Yes. So the, the original vehicle um, that was put on a sketch of paper, I remember watching it being drawn by one of my good friends in China, uh, two good friends. And um, within months of it being sketched out, um, the original idea actually came long before the sketch. Uh, so a gentleman by the name of Token, who had been a designer at Microsoft and Frog Design and He's a motorcycle enthusiast himself and saw a, a huge need to actually bring lithium batteries to mopeds in China because since the beginning of time of electric mopeds in China, it's been lead acid batteries. So all the way back to say circa 2007, 2008, basically 15 years ago, um, it was lead acid battery. And he, he said, okay, well, why don't we put lithium ion batteries into these, into these bikes? And so he started hacking away around 2009, 2010 on some pet projects, and it came back into fruition in 2014. And then by 2015, after raising capital, it became a real product that was selling in China. And it started as like a, as a crowdfunding project um, in China where we hmm. sold, I think about like $10 million during that crowdfunding project in about two weeks. Um, and then it just all, it blew up from there, literally, uh, with more products, uh, more, more online sales, more offline sales, and it just continued to snowball uh, from there, both in China and then shortly after we launched um, the international market. Yeah, and what was that growth like within China, and then when did you take it global and where to? Yeah, so I think uh, the growth in China basically went from zero to several hundred thousand in a matter of a year, um, and then it went to wow. hundreds of thousands per year. Um, and, and now I think last year we sold about a little more than 700,000 mopeds. Um, and and the, the growth overseas happened pretty quickly, uh, small numbers, but the countries happened pretty quickly into middle of 2016. So from shipping our first vehicle in China in August 2015, we were hitting 
markets in, in Europe, like Germany, France, and elsewhere, by late 2016, by Q3, Q4 2016. And our first real sales in Europe started um, with dealers in 2017. And now in Europe alone, we have more than 1,000 points of sale that sell our mopeds, and we have hundreds more stores that sell our kick scooters uh, through big box retailers. And then in the U.S., we have, again, you know, we have retail stores for our mopeds in almost every state uh, in the union, uh, at least the lower 48 and Hawaii. Um, I'm not sure about Alaska. Uh, and then, you know, we have, you know, partnerships with retailers, um, big box retailers in the U.S. like Best Buy. Um, we sell in nearly 500 Best Buy stores now, our kick scooters, soon to be our e-bikes as well, not our mopeds, um, but definitely the, the kick scooters and the, the e-bikes. So we... We have, we've grown from nothing to a very large retail network. And then also, obviously, we have online uh, sales as well, uh, Amazon and our own um, homegrown e-commerce as well. Yeah, and for, for you personally, you know, having entered the micromobility space before it became super hot in like 2018, mm -hmm. 19, 20, uh, you know, what's mm -hmm. your story with entering the company and your, you know, personal journey bouncing around and growing this? Yeah, well, I've, I've been in China... Um, basically since the year 2000. So I spent half my life in China, 2000 wow. to 2020. Uh, I'm talking to you right now from Dubai, uh, where I lived for the past three years. Um, I've been working within the technology startup scene for, for most of that uh, period of time. And, and somebody that I had started another company with, Token, Token Who, he started new uh, with a number of different founders. Hmm. And I jumped into it um, out of, for two reasons. One, I wanted to help him build a brand globally, him personally, and then by its nature, his other founders and partners. And then secondly is I have a passion for urban design, urban development. Um, it's actually one of my degrees from university. Um, I also studied economics and political science, but I always had this passion for how do I fix cities? How do we make, fix, how do we make cities better? Um, and it always, you know, a lot of, conversation always comes around transportation. There's a lot of other things that we need to do to fix cities besides making more lanes for bikes and, and scooters, but it's an important piece of, uh, of a city infrastructure is moving people around. And, and I saw these electric vehicles as a solution. Uh, and that's really why I joined, was to help him build a brand and to see if we could help, if this vehicle could help solve some urban mobility problems in Europe and, and elsewhere. And you know, when we were talking, when we first brought these products into the overseas markets, there was really no one talking about micro-mobility, right? There was no one talking about um, these shared mobility systems, no one talking about mopeds, electric scooters. When we were, when we were bringing these to Europeans back in 2016 and 17, um, people were like, this is electric? This is from China? Uh, you know, we were going to the largest motorcycle shows in the world, and... We're like, yeah, this is electric. It's lithium, same technology as Tesla. They're like, it, it works. I mean, this is this is two. This is only like six years ago, right? Uh, these are the types of questions we were receiving at the largest motorcycle shows in the world. Um, and then the, the best questions I would get were, but these were designed by Italians, right? Not, not Chinese. No, I'm like, <laughs> they were designed by our, our Chinese design office um, in Shanghai. They're like, no, no, this couldn't be from it from a Chinese team. I'm like, absolutely. You, you don't think there's 
there's a handful of great designers out of one billion people that can design beautiful bikes uh, and design great software and great hardware. Uh, so it was that was the level of conversations we were having in 2016 and 2017. Uh, we had to completely break the ice. You know, we were we were not only introducing a brand, but we were also more or less spearheading a, a completely new industry of sorts. Obviously, the two-wheel business in Europe and, and elsewhere is huge, right? Motorcycles, mo petrol motorcycles, petrol mopeds in Europe and Asia. These are very large markets, relatively speaking. But electric was literally zero uh, when, when we entered most of those markets in Germany, France, Spain, Italy. Um, and it was fun to be, able to be a part of that, to be able to spearhead that and cr help create something not just a brand, but actually help create an industry from almost nothing. Yeah, so on that note, um, mopeds is something that Westerners, well, especially in the U.S., we don't have as much consciousness of, even though it's honestly probably, you know, it is objectively the biggest vehicle class of the world when you account for Latin America and India and Southeast Asia and China and what have you. And so mm -hmm. um, just kind of like helping educate you know, listeners who, who are looking to get some insights from this, yeah. you know, new is a, a major global player, but what are the other major global players in mopeds? Well, let's talk about petrol and electric, right? Uh, because yeah, we're not going to just talk about electric here. So um, when it comes to electric, uh, when it comes to lithium uh, electric, new is the biggest player in the world uh, for two wheels right now. Um, some of our competitors in lithium include like Yadi, uh, include Aima, uh, Segway. These are Chinese companies. From India, you'll see companies like Ola, TVS, which is a traditional petrol company, um, Aether, uh, Hero Electric. Um, that's the India companies. Out of Europe, you'll see companies like Silence, Askel, um, previously a company called Govex, um, and a company called Unu. And, um, and then obviously out of America, I wouldn't call it mopeds, but you have zero electric making motorcycles. And that kind of gives you, I probably missed a handful, and go, go, row out of Taiwan, sorry. That gives you kind of a, a full picture as to what's happening in electric. But then in, in petrol, you know, some of the biggest you know, two-wheelers that are being sold um, come out of India. So you have like Bajaj, hmm. you have Hero. They have TDS Petrol. Those are like and Mahindra to a degree out of India. Out of China, there's probably two dozen petrol makers, but most of that's getting shipped out to mm. Latin America and Indonesia. Uh, and then, of course, you have Honda and Yamaha that dominate, uh, that really dominate Southeast Asia and obviously parts of East Asia. So that's kind of the 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 make of of the the, the, of the, the landscape. To give you perspective in size of two-wheel market, the electric two-wheel market in China alone is 40 million units per year. Sheesh. A lot. <laughs> now, these aren't just like, these are mopeds and these like mopeds that are almost like e-bikes. They're kind of a hodgepodge of things. And it's not just lithium batteries, it's also lead-acid batteries. And these things can sell as cheap as, let's call it, Four or five hundred U.S. dollars, actually even cheaper, three or four hundred U.S. dollars, all the way up to say one thousand five hundred to two thousand U.S. dollars in China. That kind of gives you the price range. Um, but the reason that the market is so large is that 
for the past decade, the government has put policies in place to encourage that type of vehicle being the form factor of choice. Hmm. And they've what done are, that what are some both. examples of that? Um, the, it's more of a stick than a carrot. So <laughs> the stick being that in order to put a license plate on a petrol motorcycle or a petric moped in big cities like Shanghai or Beijing, it's prohibitively expensive, thousands of dollars just for the license plate. Where if you, for a petrol version, but if you want an electric, it's free. Um, in India, it's still dominated by petrol, but this year they're going to probably cross through a million electric mopeds, scooters being sold this year for the first time. Uh, but there you're talking about a market of two wheelers of about 20 million, 21 million total motorcycles and, and moped scooters being sold in, in the country of India, Southeast Asia, we're talking about 15 million Latin America ballpark, five or 6 million petrol there the presence of electric is still quite small also in southeast asia the presence of electric is very very small still in its nascent uh, days so it's very interesting to see kind of the scope of this business um, so that's the moped uh, and then obviously the scooters the kick scooters you know the kqis that we sell or like the segway you know maxes or the xiaomi's or the you know any of these brands that you guys regularly work with um, you know, you're talking about in Europe, ballpark two and a half, three million of those being sold every year. The United States, should, you guys know the data better than me, but the, the, the numbers in the United States should hit close to a million units being sold this year. This is just in the B2C market. In Europe, it's dominated by super cheap scooters, where in America, it's more, let's call it middle to high end type of scooters, 500 to $1,000 scooters where in Europe it's more like sub $400 scooters, very, very low price scooters. So that kind of gives you kind of a picture of what electric two wheels looks like um, for those two form factors. And then when we get into e-bikes, which is a new space for us um, that we've really just entered into in the United States and will soon follow up within Europe, you know, you have, you know, five, six million in Europe, maybe we'll crack the 1 million units um, in the United States in the next year or so. Um, so clearly micromobility, mopeds, e-bikes, and kick scooters, electric kick scooters are on the rise in all of these markets. So it's very exciting to be a part of, for sure. Yeah, and so one follow-up interesting question and then a fun one. The interesting yep. one is, you know, you brought up kind of electrification of mopeds. There, there might be somewhere around a billion petrol mo or mo mopeds out there when you consider the scope of the planet. I don't know. But yeah. you know, with 8 billion people, maybe a billion of them are, have of, of mopeds. So how do you look at the electrification? You know, there's all these conversations about the imperative of the environment right now. And what, where, what's the global status in that? Mm. Tough question, Chase. Um, I don't, you know, there's... <laughs> um, you know, in... I, I pause and think about this question, even though you told me you were going to ask me this ahead of time. Uh, but I think that the reason I pause is because when I look at regions like Europe, where there's more than enough means to be able to purchase electric vehicles, there's still a hesitation to move from petrol to electric in, in even the largest markets like Italy, hmm. right, where it's still 
more than uh, about 90% of, of all two-wheelers are still petrol being sold in Italy, despite the availability of electric being there in mass for multiple brands, and then also being incentivized by the government, 30% rebate off of the retail price. So the cost of a petrol and an electric equivalent is pretty much the same. Um, so there's still a, a deep hesitation from this consumer base to, to move from petrol to electric. Maybe it's a bit of range anxiety, maybe it's like long-term warranty um, surprises that they, they don't want to be hit with, uh, you know, with batteries having issues in the future. Um, but in Europe, I think, despite the fact that there is, um, there's, a, there's a lot of incentives in place for mopeds, there's still, uh, there's, it's still lagging. We expected the, the market to probably be three times bigger than it is today. So when I look back at 2016, I expected the moped business to be three times bigger than it is today. Now that might be because, that, that is not my, it is because the electric bike market took off uh, mm -hmm. much faster than most people expected. Maybe a little bit driven by COVID, but really just naturally organic growth in the in e-bike e market once people realized that e-bikes were quite fun um, and not for just old people. Uh, and then the kick scooter market um, also took off. Uh, and so I think in that, in the European context, that's why we have expanded into these other spaces is because we realize that there's different customers demand different types of products because they have different scenarios of, of how they're moving themselves for work or for pleasure. Uh, when it comes to other regions around the world, India is moving to this, into electric because it sees the rest of the world going to electric. So they want to build an industry around that. And so they're incentivizing manufacturers, they're incentivizing the customer to switch from petrol to electric. So it will happen much faster in India. And we've seen it, you know, going basically from zero units in 2017 to a million units in 2023, right? Um, so that's definitely moving there. The rest of the world, outside of China, India, and Europe, um, and America, which is basically kick scooters and e-bikes. Mopeds is just not a thing in the United States. The rest of the world, so Latin America, Africa, and Southeast Asia are lagging um, because of the cost of ownership of a petrol vehicle mm -hmm. is just so much more affordable um, than an electric. And there's many levers that need to be pulled from different parts of the equation to get people to move over to electric um, in the not so distant future because for most people in Latin America, Africa, throughout the African continent and Southeast Asia, a two-wheel vehicle is not just a form of transport. It's a, it's a, form, it's a utility vehicle for work. Um, so for them, um, that vehicle serves a much bigger purpose than just you know, becoming environmentally friendly and, and greenwashing. Um, they really need the vehicle to operate 24-7 uh, to earn an income to support their family. Mm -hmm. And so there it's going to be um, an entire business model of, from a manufacturer and other partners locally to electrify those spaces. And, you know, to, to talk about that a little bit more without you asking the follow-up question is, is that we're working with different companies in Asia and, and in Latin America right now to, to tackle that problem. Uh, for example, we're working with a company in, in Brazil, in Sao Paulo, called Vamo. Um, some ex-Tesla, ex-Rappi guys um, and the best way to look at them is they're like a vehicle as a service company um, where they're basically offering an all-in subscription price for motorboy delivery drivers. And 
the mm. drivers get access to their network of battery swapping stations and they get access to 24 seven support of the vehicle maintenance. And in return, they pay a base subscription fee that's cheaper than owning uh, a petrol motorcycle. And what we see there is adoption growing very quickly. Um, overnight, they basically were able to, um, they were basically able to, sorry, Siri just popped up in my ear. Um, they were able <laughs> to you know, fulfill the entire demand that they had created um, of vehicles for us. And they're also piloting other, other manufacturers as well. So it's very exciting to see that with the right business model, um, then the electrification comes. But if electric manufacturers, manufacturers of electric motorcycles and mopeds think that we can just make bikes and then sell them the traditional way through dealers and distribution networks, it just isn't going to work. There has to be hybrid models to electrify these developing locations. Yeah, and before Electric Scooter Guide, now Rider Guide, I was at Unagi Scooters, which is pioneering subscriptions for you know kick scooters and i joined in 2020 so it's interesting to hear you talk about kind of like the as a service shift towards selling a service instead of selling a you know a product object you know and so do you did you did i hear that right that you're saying you're collaborating with a company in brazil to offer this as a service and could you could you see this um affecting other markets or becoming something that new does um, I think at this point, we're just focusing on that partner in Brazil. Um, and the way that, mm -hmm. you know, we build our vehicles as a manufacturer, we're not just building dumb vehicles. All of our vehicles, we build from the cloud all the way down to the vehicle. So they're connected. Uh, we build all the IoT that's on board. We build all of the, the firmware and then everything that's up in the cloud so that any type of operator or any type of dealer is able to basically tap into our vehicles to be able to create a new business model provided that they can pull information and mm. command our vehicles through our API. So that's how we're working with them. And we can work with the, we can work in that same way with any of our vehicles in any market. Uh, to say that we're going to take that to other markets right now, I, I don't see it happening. Um, in other markets where we offer different types of business models is where we support sharing companies. So we're the largest uh, manufacturer of, sh of mopeds for sharing companies. Um, in the world. So you can find our, our vehicles throughout Europe uh, with companies like Felix in, in Amsterdam, Cabify throughout Spain, um, in New York City and, and San Francisco, you can find Revel uh, mopeds where you can share, use the shared services that they offer. So again, that comes back to us starting as not just a manufacturer of vehicles, but of a fully connected vehicle um, that any operator can tap into to be able to use for their their service and operations. Yeah, and what percentage of, I, I know, I'd say, especially mopeds that are shipping out, because with more budget scooters here, it's, it's expensive to throw some IoT in there, but what percentage of mopeds are going out the new doors with IoT these days? 100%. Every oh, wow. One. Yeah. Sweet. All of our mopeds Once. go out with IoT. Um, our kick scooters and our e-bikes, the ones that we have on the market that are like sub $1,000, currently don't have IoT, but could be equipped with IoT if and when needed. Mm. Yeah, and so I promised that fun question. So you said, you said Yadi, and I didn't actually know that was the pronunciation all this time. And also yeah. another brand that is mispronounced a lot of the time is new. And so our, yeah. our person, Oliver, who hooks us up with the scooters to review, we asked him and he told mm. us about the logo being uh, Little Bull or something Ooh. like that. So could you tell us about yeah. how do we pronounce it? What's going on there? 
Well, the name is, is new. Um, that's the anglification of, of it. Um, in Chinese, the name of the company is Xiaonyo Diandongche, which literally means small bull electric bike, electric car. Um, and so the reason that we have a bull as our, as our logo, as our brand name, is that the idea behind it was very, very simple, is that China in ancient times was built on the back of water buffaloes, which mm. is also pronounced, it's a derivative of new, of N-I-U. And so the, the future of China would be built on the back of electric bulls and buffaloes mm. moving through the cities of China. So that's, that's the story. Um, and the easiest way to pronounce it in English or in any kind of romantic language is new. Um, but I have, you know, up in Northern Europe, they call it Nui. Hmm. In other countries, before. they call it NIU. Uh, you know, I get spellings even from my distributors that have been distributing my product. I get emails and they spell it wrong. So, you know, a, 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 a single syllable brand name is, is definitely a challenge to yeah. work with. Um, I do like two syllables, but hey, this is what I got to, to work with. But I mean, it has a great heritage to, to the name. Um, it's, it's a great URL. It's just three letters. Uh, can't beat NIU.com. And, uh, and, and it has like a significant meaning uh, and purpose behind the name. It's not just some random name that we came up with. Yeah. And so shifting to scooters, we'd love to hear from you, Mitchell. What, what was your kind of experience with the new scooters just from kind of start to and joining ESG, you know? Um, I think it's been awesome to, like, from the very start, it feels like New has presented a very, like, you can tell they know what they're doing. That was, like, definitely my first impressions, and I talk about it in my very first video on the KQI3. Um, it's, it's, like, really impressive. I don't know, it's just a breath of fresh air to see how well it was packaged and how much of a quality product was delivered at, at the price it was. And I'm not just saying that. I, I genuinely was blown away. And so it's been awesome to, uh, like, this company that I'd never heard of present mm. this this beautiful product and kind of set a new standard. And that that's what it felt like the the industry needed at that price point. It felt like things were getting a little static. And then, boom, this beautiful product that presents, you know, the specs and the quality that is head and shoulders above anything else at the price point. So it's been really cool to, uh, to, to, to get to know new through, through their, through their kick scooters. Yeah. And you brought up the concept of design and really good design coming from China and how that's even like an interesting narrative for new as a company and what it means for the country. And if I had to encapsulate what I've seen from new products and, and kind of two things, I think, one is like that beautiful design, and I, I really resonate with design, so I personally love that. Whereas Paul is more, you know, he comes from motorcycle, motorcycle racing and physics, and so he's just all about the build quality, and he's just like, this is vehicle grade, this is vehicle grade, you're only paying 600 for 500 for this, but this is the vehicle grade thing. And, and uh, yeah, like even with the mopeds, I, I don't have personal experience with the new mopeds, but contacts that I have that are into it they say oh yeah the new ones are definitely the best and just I was in Amsterdam you know a year ago and just seeing them everywhere they're just they're beautiful you know and you've got the iconic 
large halo and you know transporting that onto the scooters was a great move it's just it's just a the products that you're just you have delight in owning you know and it feels good i think the you know to to kind of comment on what both of you have said is that our design team and our product team uh, take pride in you know delivering the best in class product at a certain price point so one thing I didn't mention at the very, very beginning is that um, during the early days, people would always ask us, well, why don't you make your vehicles to go faster or go farther or you know, have bigger range or better speed to be more in line with, with like the petrol competition, the gas-powered competition that was out there. Um, and then these same type, and so these same type of questions kept coming over and over again. And you know, I, at first I was really stumped but then I kind of stepped back and, and spoke with our design team and, and some of our founders and really came to the, the understanding as to why we chose certain things and why we chose to design in certain ways, why we chose to include certain technologies. Like, why didn't we put beautiful iPhone-level screens as our dashboards? Well, because under, under the sun, they burn up. Yeah, you can put a beautiful screen at a relatively cheap price, but under sun and rain, they just don't last very long. So we choose very basic LCD screens very early on. So we were always choosing technologies as they matured within the vehicle grade industry. And we always chose technologies that would resonate at a price point with customers as well. So that we made sure that all of our products were affordable um, and were able to actually meet the, the needs of those customers. So we didn't need to make bikes that went farther because People were only driving 15 kilometers a day. Why do I need to make a bike that has a range of 180 kilometers if they're only driving 15 kilometers a day? And I don't need a bike that goes 100 kilometers an hour if they're only driving, if they're restricted in the cities to only go 45 kilometers per hour. And so we always made those choices between design and performance that would be affordable uh, for the end user and practical. Uh, and so thank you for the kind words on, on the good design. I'll, I'll send that back to the guys uh, but at the same, and gals that, that, that do all the design for us. But at the end of the day, we were very practical about the choices we made um, and, and making sure that we could always push design language and, and, and higher levels of design within the industry at certain price points. Because you can buy beautiful scooters from any of our competitors um, and any of the at very, you know, beautiful, beautiful, well-designed scooters for $2,000, $3,000 for sure. Um, but I think if we were making a 2000 or $3,000 product, it would be even more beautiful and, and more <laughs> robust in terms of technology, but we don't, we just choose not to, we let them operate in that space, uh, because that's where their expertise lies, um, and let them, um, you know, dominate that space where we want to, you know, really be a, a brand that's supporting you know, a certain type of customer at certain types of price points. And that speaks, you know, if you go online and look at any of our product, you know exactly the type of customer that, that we're pushing towards. You know, we're looking at those individuals that are living in cities that need new types of transportation um, or maybe living in the suburbs and are just looking for a new fun toy to, to play with, um, but at a very specific price range as well. And I think all of our products are quite affordable and well-designed um, at the same time. Yeah, and our so we are formerly electric scooter guide. I think our audience really wants to hear more about electric scooters. So, um, you know, with 2018, we 
that's when scooters start to blow up. It's a bunch of Xiaomi's and a bunch of Segway ES2's and all that. And then, you know, there there is more of the 2000 price point, but they tend to be a little bit more cobbled together pieces, less integrated design and stuff. And so then, you know, as a later entrant, which is an interesting narrative to talk about, but, you know, in 2021, coming out with the KQI-3, uh, I think for Electric Scooter Guide, you know, we, we've built our brand off of comparing every single vehicle to the rest of the industry instead of just saying, this is how fast it goes, et cetera. Um, yep. And the KQI-3, it was definitely like really good in lots of things and the best in some things. But then what really blew us away was in 2022 with the KQI-2, where it was just like, wow, this really stands apart at that price point. And then the K3 Max 2 coming out with like a legit, a, a more legit Ninebot Max competitor than the, the 3 was. Um, I'd be interested to hear like, what was the strategy entering a new product category, you know, doing it a little bit later and thinking that through and just what, what was that roadmap and, and if you can share anything about what might be next. Yeah, I think we were a little bit late to the game when it comes to kick scooters uh, because we wanted to remain singularly focused on our moped business, which we wanted to be the strongest and the best at, at a global level. Mm. I think we did that. Um, we also knew that the kick scooter business or the kick scooter market would continue to grow, mm. um, you know, grow in size, you know, compound annual growth of 20, 30%, depending on what market you're looking at, I mean, even larger in some markets. And so there was no major concern early on from missing out on that, especially since a lot of the early product that was coming into the markets was either super high cost, like you mentioned, or very low cost Xiaomi type of stuff. And we knew that most of that, the, the cheap stuff would last maybe a year, maybe 18 yeah. months before people needed to go and buy a new product. So we thought, okay, well, let's just kind of wait our turn. Let's not just dive in and, and follow everything like typical companies do in this space. Um, and let's see what type of form factors are, are really the best in class and what type of form factors customers are really resonating to in different markets. And so the K2 and the K3, the KQI2 and the KQI3, um, all the different variants of it were actually built more or less together at the same time. We just released them at different times um, in order to be able to, because we knew that the the KQI-3 price point is where we wanted to position ourselves as kind of this up, this middle to upper premium uh, type of product. And we wanted to be known for that high quality grade because we knew if we command that price, and I actually think that the product should be priced higher. And I think all of our competitors should actually price a little bit higher. <laughs> because I think all of us are, are giving great value. Uh, especially if you go online at Amazon right now and see the crazy prices that some that we're selling at and some of our competitors are selling at. It's it's a really good deal. Um, so we wanted to come in at that price point. So we, we made sure that we could deliver on the value uh, at that price. Uh, we didn't want to bring the KQI3 Max in first because we thought it was a little bit expensive and we weren't sure what the demand would be for that. We've been very surprised ever since um, in the increased demand for that product, mm. not only in our own online and offline sales, but through some of the retail partners that we work with as well, like Best Buy and Target and others. Very surprised. Uh, by the demand through those channels. And then the KQI2 Pro and, and the subsequent KQI1s uh, that have come out um, was our opportunity to begin to tap into those other markets that some of the competitors had already opened up. But again, 
offer better quality build, offer better performance at, at a price that we thought was fair. So it was from us, the, the logic behind coming from higher end to lower end is, I mean, we're just taking a page out of Tesla at, at the end of the day, bring in the higher price and, and then work down from there. To be honest with you though, that we're gonna bring out some higher ends than KQI3 Max um, in future. I think this year, see don't it. hold me to it. I don't want to, <laughs> I shouldn't be saying this, but I think we have a couple products coming out in the not so distant future. So I'm sure we'll get you, um, you guys will want to get your hands on some to do some some testing. Um, and, and I think also some even lower end uh, products, but at really with really good quality build um, at surprisingly very affordable prices. Um, so we, we, we continue to get, you know, inquiry from our our distributors and then also from our customers is to say hey well why can't you offer you know a $399 product and we say well again now we have to figure out how to make a $399 product have a two-year warranty because everyone else puts a one-year warranty how do we bring it up to the same build quality as our KQI2 Pros and our KQI3s but deliver it at KQI1 prices like how do we do all this and that just takes time it takes a little bit of R&D um, it's not something that you can just like Poof, overnight. For as simple as a product as a kick scooter is, there's a lot of R&D that goes into those things because you have to figure out the cost on every single little element in order to be able to deliver to a customer at the prices that they feel is a good value. Um, and that's actually the hardest part of the R&D is, is, is figuring out which components to leave in and which components to, to, to remove in order to deliver on pricing. Um, everything from, you know, dashboards that, you know, that have speed readings uh, to not having dashboards that have those things in order to save a few dollars in cost. Um, these are the types of decisions that our design team has to make. I mean, I'm getting, I'm being a bit pedantic here, but these are the types of considerations you have to have in order to be able to deliver, deliver product at value. Um, so yeah, that's the story. Yeah. And um, so, you know, we in 2022 were reviewing the K2 and the K3 Max and the K2 in particular, it was a really clear narrative for us. It was like, well, here this comes this company that's extremely respected in mopeds. You know, it's going to be vehicle grade. And we tested it and it definitely was really blew us away. Um, really like just incredible in every way. I mean, it's the only the one thing is it's on the heavier end, more about 40 pounds than 30. But um, it, for someone who makes that trade off and doesn't need to run upstairs and stuff as much, it, it, it's, it's clear. And um, but, you know, we were honored to be a part of that. Uh, launch and, and making it big and th just that two-year warranty too was something that was competitive but one thing we we're going to talk about is like it's really hard to grow the scooter market it's it's competitive it's a lot of money to ship these back and forth you don't have the e-bike infrastructure and so if you look you know we helped launch it and then on amazon you know it's like the ratings are not 4.7 or something like that we've seen it's, it's new news not the only one for sure we've we've seen we've witnessed right. a lot of trouble and operations across companies but i'd love to hear you talk to yeah. kind of what that launch was like operationally and and kind of what new is doing to kind of build those roots in the u.s and other you know parts more especially in scooters yeah so i think the when we entered initially uh in both europe and, and in the united states uh, we knew that we were going to face challenges in the after sales and service just because of the the breadth of the the side the geographic size of all those markets mm -hmm. uh, but there was really nothing that we could do 
in order to circumvent that problem unless we put our own service network in place in every sing in the United States, for example, in every single major market. And that just is not cost effective. Then I would have to sell scooters at twice the price um, in order yeah. to be able to make that effective. Um, so we chose the best in class partners at that time in North America and in Europe uh, to be able to assist us with the, the after sales and service. And some of those partners didn't leave up, live up to their end of the bargain mm -hmm. and, and caused some headaches for us and for our customers. And we quickly recognized that. But in order to, to fix some of those issues, it just takes a bit of time. You know, it does, it's not something that we can just flip a switch and, and have it solved overnight um, for all of our customers and for ourselves. And, and we recognize that. And so what we've begun to do is, is, is begin to partner with, with more after-sales specialists um, that are growing as the industry grows um, and, actually, and get some of their service network uh, warehouses closer to where our customers are. So we moved some, like in the United States, for example, we moved some of our where most of our warehouses for servicing out of California and into the state of Texas, which is basically, if you're in Dallas, you're basically in the center of the whole country. Uh, we also now are opening up our service network to some of our, to all of our flagship stores in the United States. Soon this will actually occur in Europe as well, but we're starting in the U.S., and then we hope to get that into some, uh, some more of our, our dealers throughout the U.S. so that people will be able to walk into a store to, to be able to get something fixed. It's kind of common sense. You would expect mm -hmm. that, that to be able to be done. But we knew that that was the end goal, but we knew we yeah. couldn't achieve it in day one. So we, we yeah. had a kind of a, a two and a half year time frame to go from, you know, a very grassroots after sales service in place, network in place, to now a little bit more robust. And, I, and I'm pretty certain that by a, a year from now, um, we'll probably, not probably, we will definitely have the, the best in class after sales network in the United States. And we'll probably be on our way to having the best in class after sales network um, in, in Europe as well. Uh, because to put it in perspective for you, you know, in Europe, we have over a thousand stores that sell our product today. Mm. And the after sales business of the two wheel, any kind of size two wheel, whether it's a motorcycle or a kick scooter, is actually where these dealers are able to earn income. Um, and that's how mm -hmm. they, they really thrive as businesses. And so we want to help them thrive. And we also want to help the customers, you know, feel like they're getting serviced in, in a timely manner and at an affordable price. And so in, in America, you know, we're, we're aiming to do the same with, with our warehouse uh, after sales network and then also our points of sale after sales network. So the story is to be continued. Um, it's a, still a challenge, uh, but I think we're, you know, as customers push us harder and, you know, with their issues that they're having and asking us for faster resolutions, we are responding as best as we possibly can to, to meet those needs. I don't think we're perfect. I know we're not perfect, actually. I, I read the Amazon reviews as well. I read the emails from frustrated customers. And if I was that customer, I would also want to have better service. Uh, but we're not a, by no stretch of the imagination are we ignoring them, um, but in fact using all that input to figure out how we improve our after sales. And I think that's something a year from now um, we'll we'll have much better handle on, um, especially in the United States and, and yeah. be outpacing any of our competitors. Yeah, and we we talked about Oliver with, with Oliver too about that just how difficult it is, and we even saw some kind of innovative tackles to this because especially with amazon amazon doesn't give 
the the seller the information of the customer too and you don't control the experience and so it, it makes support harder you know and mm. so um how how many flagship stores do you have and kind of how can how is new kind of creatively getting around like this especially with so many distribution channels like that's mm. hard so like how, how yeah, are you solving it's, it's, that yeah yeah so our flagship store network in the united states is still small it's basically the west coast and so california a handful of stores up into washington state and then also down in florida and in new york city and then we have mm. then we have another hundred dealers that sell our mopeds but most of them are not really set up to, to take kick scooters today. Um, and so most of it's still coming through the warehouse. Um, so, but all of that is automated. And, and if anyone has a problem, they just go onto our website and it's a, it, no matter if they bought it on Amazon, they bought it through Best Buy or they bought it through our own e-commerce or bought it through one of our stores, uh, our retailers. They just go online, a packing label is, is set up, they throw it in a box, we'll pick it up and, and we'll send it back to them. Um, but it's that pickup, delivery, send back, it's that time frame of being left without your vehicle for, you know, 10 days to 15 days. That's just, let's be honest, it's not cool. Um, and, but at this point in time, there really is no better solution. I, I challenge entrepreneurs. Uh, I, cha mm. I challenge dealers as to like, let's create a better service network for e-bikes and, and electric kick scooters that are being sold online and even offline. Um, because at the end of the day, there's, literally millions of these vehicles in America right now yeah. that need better service. Not just yeah. my brand, and, all brands. Oh, absolutely. And um, also you brought up the first time we talked, you know, all the shipping boxes back and forth. Not only is uh, that crazy expensive because it's heavy and you're shipping a lithium battery. So it's a different class of package in a lot of circumstances, but it's, it's just, it's also just more movement of, mass and therefore not good for the environment in some ways too so is the is do you think that the way to solve because also like e scooters don't benefit from the e-bike or, or the the bike infrastructure that does exist even though it's not extensive and then you've got way more proprietary design and you know happening in scooters than in bikes too mm -hmm. and so how do you see just generally this evolving does it mean that all the leading brands are going to need to have um, their own flagship stores in every major city, or there's going to be um, dealers that kind of just choose to support the leading brands? I think um, there will be those entrepreneurs that take on that challenge um, mm. to create mobile servicing units, especially in major metropolitan areas. This will develop over the next three to five years. I'm certain of that uh, because they'll be able to service both the bicycle, e-bike, and uh, electric scooter uh, sales industry. That'll be number one. Number two is that still a large percentage of, of after sales service warranty products will still move between customer house and warehouse for sure. And, but I also believe that retailers like independent bike dealers will begin to see the opportunity that they've been missing out on in order to take on these servicing opportunities that they're not doing right now. And, and literally leaving a lot of money on the table in terms of local servicing if they were able to open up to it. Because fixing an electric scooter is not really a challenge, um, especially yeah. when it comes to compared to like high performance bicycles that are not even electric um, yeah. or uh, basic electric bicycles. This product is, is fairly, fairly simple. Um, I think the only thing that is a challenge is 
is the batteries, right? But anyone can be trained on the battery, battery safety, um, if they go through the right protocol of, of training. So I, I see this evolving over the next two or three years because this is, in order for, to make this industry sustainable, this has to happen. Um, and it will be pushed by the, the manufacturers putting more vehicles into the market and then the right entrepreneurs will come in and, and begin to service that. So just to put it in perspective for you, um, at this point in time in the automotive industry, in the, automo the petrol automotive <laughs> industry in the United States, it's something on the order of like 70 or 75% of the after sales and service that's being done on legacy automobiles is being done not by the dealerships that sold the cars, but being done by like the, the Meineke's and the auto nations of the world. Uh, and so you can see that entrepreneurs come into the marketplace and businesses come into the marketplace to service it. It just takes time. Um, and it's not something that all the different, I say, the players that are involved in this space have figured out how to monetize um, and, and make it a good customer experience as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so running up on time, so we'll kind of wrap up. Um, but something that we're always educating customers on, too, is that whatever happens, even though this is a, a more it's it's a nascent industry, it's going to figure it out, you know, and we, we are getting better. And this has the scooters has been around since 2018. And there, there's also like, I think the servicing gets easier as like a lot the brands do consolidate a little, because right now there's just too many, <laughs> you know, white label, um, trash things out there and then also you brought up like cheaper things well, on amazon that, i think they're cheaper i think there's some cheaper things on amazon because they can't service at all and they they know it and we, we we've seen that and so we're always warning people like you know get a company that is going to keep you safe and have the the right battery certification we're seeing that right now of like a lot of regulators starting to wake up to like oh yeah we need to start requiring that there's like battery um regulations in this and so uh, larger companies with the uh, integrated design are going to have the advantage in that. And I think it's it's better for the customer. And um, But what's also beautiful about the micromobility space is um, something that Horace Didu says is the smaller the creature, the faster it evolves. He also talks about jobs to be done, which you brought up, of just like different vehicles for different jobs. And to replace a car, you're probably going to have multiple micromobility vehicles for different purposes. And um, yeah, and so because it's smaller, it evolves quicker, there's a lot of diversity. I, I personally expect more brands to thrive in micromobility than in automobility because automobility is just, it's a massive object. So kind of wrapping up, you know, you brought up e-bikes and that's the one we haven't talked about yet. That, yep. That's a really competitive space. You've got multiple players who have gotten you know, poured 300 million on and stuff. It's just, you've got the, the budget with like the electric and rad, and then you've got the Aventons and Van Moofs with tons of money. So how does, how is new looking at the e-bike space? You know, the e-bike space is, it, it, it's very interesting you know, because it's, the kick scooter space, let me take a step back for a second. The kick scooter market in Europe and America is very similar in terms of form factor. It's just, which form factors are more popular, or what price points are more popular in one market versus the other. But the, the same form factor, the same brands are the most dominant um, in both markets, right? Um, but when it comes to e-bikes and bicycles, there's a whole ecosystem that exists in Europe, and then there's a whole other ecosystem that exists in the United States. I mean, completely different brands altogether. 
Um, mm. you know, Rad Power has tried to take off in Europe, but it's fairly small in terms of its presence over there. Uh, Van Moof has tried to come over from Europe into America, but again, is, is very, fairly small. And then you have all the large incumbent brands that have been with us for decades. Um, and then you have the, the kind of the, the players that are trying to come up within the electric space, like Juiced or Super 73, Venton, et cetera, Okai, and us. And so, like I said earlier, we're kind of like the Honda motorcycles of two wheels. So we hmm. see this as yet another form factor that you know, fits a specific need for specific types of customers that desire a well-designed product at a very affordable price. And so we have channels and we have partners that we work with at a global level and then at a, like a national level in the United States that love our bike. And then as we work with them more closely, they'll get them in front of more customers. And as we work our online channels, we'll get them in front of more customers. And over time, it's a, it's a gradual role to, to have larger adoption of our vehicles. We have one form factor right now where all of our competitors have at least a half a dozen but we're singularly focused on that one form factor and we're gonna grow from there into two, three or four other similar form factors to provide different utility needs or consumer needs um, in, in very specific urban markets and a handful of suburban markets. So for us, e-bikes will be um, a, a space where we learn and evolve with the market and take our excellence in battery technology, motor, you know, understanding of, of building up motors and powertrains and then circling that into what you were talking about before is that if we're moving people away from automobiles, then they're gonna need several different form factors to move them around. And what we see is that you know, in the not so distant future, we believe that a lot of our customers will have a moped, will have an e-bike and have a kick scooter for different types of uses, right? And I already have customers in different markets that actually own all three. Yeah. That's exciting to see, right? Uh, and, they, and they use it for very different purposes, the same person has three different two wheels in their house. It shocks me at first, but then when I begin to see it as to like why they use different vehicles on different days for different use cases, then it begins to make sense. And all of it for one third of the cost of a, of a, of a cheap car, of a used cheap car. Uh, yeah. you know, and we provide them new electric connected, environmentally friendly vehicles. Uh, I guess maybe the only thing that are not protected from is the rain. Uh, but you know, that's going to come too, in my theory yeah. for micro mobility gonna, we're going to have, I, I say, um, don't think of it as a small car. Think of it as a weather enclosed e-bike. And I'm, I'm expecting that coming, you know, yeah. um, as a major category in at least the next 10 years. We'll see. We'll see. Or just wear a rain jacket. You know, I think it's all the same. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're not the Dutch. We're Americans. Uh, we're a bit entitled and we kind of uh, just want everything easy. But you know, the Dutch were just like us in the 1970s. You know, if you look at pictures of like Dutch streets back in early 1970s, their roads were more packed with automobiles than ours because they were old European streets, but they converted, right? So there's nothing stopping Americans from going to more compact form factors for transportation. It's just a matter of, let's say political will, social, you know, kind of a social following that gets up behind these types of form factors. And people begin to realize that it's actually much more fun to ride a bicycle than to drive in a 4,000 pound piece of steel box with glass surrounding you all the time. Because when you ride on an electric or even just a normal bike or a scooter or a moped, 
you feel the wind, you feel the sun, you hear people talking. Mm. It's, it's just a nice experience. Um, and you yeah, get, and well, the world slows down around you a little bit. You're not it's true. locked off. Yeah, so hopefully Americans, I'm not saying that we're going to help Americans move away from cars, but that's definitely not going to happen anytime soon, considering we still buy lots of Ford F-150s, um, whether they're still the number one car, still the number one automobile in America. Um, but uh, I, I do think that more Americans are becoming conscious of the needs to move to new types of form factors that are more affordable, more environmentally friendly, um, and, and generally just more fun uh, once they get their feet and hands on them. So, Yeah, one thing I've gotten from this conversation is just a, a note of encouragement to everybody in this space. You know, it's like there's still so, like for everything that's happened, there's still so much frontier. You know, I hear that so clearly, like globally, across the form factors, everything that you talk about, what news doing. Uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us on this podcast. It's such an honor to get to talk to a director of one of the companies, one of the OGs of the space. This is so <laughs> insightful. I think a lot of people are going to really love this conversation. So thank you. And as we leave, I just wanted to ask, what do you? What are your personal vehicles that you like own and enjoy? Okay, well, I own a KQI3 Pro. That's it. Okay. Okay. You um, travel I a lot Dubai. too. I, I live in Dubai, so the mopeds here are actually not street legal. Uh, Ooh. But we're trying to change that. Um, and our electric bikes, I just haven't had one shipped here yet. Um, so I don't have one on hand. But the KQI3 is, is perfect because I can ride it down to the beach. I can ride it to downtown where I live. It's the perfect vehicle, actually. It, mm. You know? And... And there's paths, bike paths, kick scooter paths that are all throughout Dubai. So kick scooters are definitely an awesome form factor. When it, when it reaches 100, you know, 45 degrees Celsius, 110 degrees Fahrenheit outside, it's a bit warm. Uh, you, yeah. you sweat even though you're standing and moving. Uh, <laughs> but it is my, my choice form factor. And then after that, I haven't owned a car in 21 years. Uh, mm. I don't plan on owning a car. Don't hold me to that, but I don't plan on owning a car. I take public transportation, and then obviously um, here in, the, in Dubai, I take Kareem, which is the Uber of, of, uh, of Dubai. But, you know, using shared mobility um, as best I possibly can because we don't need more cars. That's for sure. Yeah. More cars. Like I think the, the great-grandson of, of, of Henry Ford, Bill Ford, the former CEO of, of Ford, and he said, you know, if I sell a million electric cars, it's still a million cars in traffic. Doesn't really yep. solve any problems of traffic, electric, right? Electric cars. So we need to, you know, really find our way to become a multimodality um, society, at least in our cities, um, both the United States and America. So, yes, thanks for having Excellent. me, Chase, and thanks for speaking with you, Mitchell. It's been a pleasure, and uh, always, if anyone that's listening to this podcast wants to reach out to me. Um, Chase, I'll give you my details. You can drop it in the, the description, description of the video, yep. and I'll be happy to respond to emails. Find me on Twitter. I don't really use it that much, but find me on LinkedIn. I'll respond to you on LinkedIn. Um, I'm the only Joseph Constanti in the world, uh, so uh, pretty easy to find me. And happy, really happy to talk to anyone uh, in this space or anyone in a tangential space as well. Sweet. All right. Well, thank you for your time. Definitely. Thanks. All right.